wait here, second class, second class, wait here, wait here, second class, second class, wait here. The Bulletin has always sought out and encouraged Australian writers and taken their work in preference to any other. I remember if you took work to Archibald, which was not distinctly Australian, he'd say, Yes, that's a very good little thing, old man, but it might have been written in Greenland. We want Australian stuff. We want the Australian atmosphere. Dr. Gregory Bryan just read an excerpt from a Henry Lawson manuscript written in England in 1901 about J.F. Archibald and the Bulletin magazine. I'm Anne-Marie Hansen, and together with Professor Bryan, in today's episode of the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast, we discuss the Bulletin, and Henry Lawson's association with that magazine. Welcome, Dr. Bryan. Yeah, welcome, Anne-Marie. It's nice to see you again. In reading your book, Mates, uh, it's very evident that the, both Archibald and the Bulletin were instrumental in Lawson's career. Can you tell us a little bit about the early days of this particular magazine, The Bulletin? The first issue was published in uh, January of 1880, uh, it was just not uh, eight pages, it was, eight pages, and they published 3,000 copies, and they all sold out. So it was very popular from the start. It was began by J.F. Archibald, who at the time was uh, only 24 years of age, and his partner was John Haynes, who was 30. Now, they were both journalists, and they decided to start their own uh, magazine. As I said, from the start, it proved very popular, but it was to go on and have a really profound impact. Uh, its, uh, its influence has been described as it being the greatest force in the development of Australian short story writing. It was also said to have fostered the robust manhood of Australian poetry. So for, for Australian literature, it was really significant in the, the, the 1880s, 1890s, and then certainly into the uh, new millennium uh, after the uh, advent of Federation. So it was a really, really important, uh, I guess, organ in the establishment of Australian literature. Now, money was really short in the early days with, uh, with Archibald and Haynes. And Victor Daly was one of the contributors. He was actually one of Henry Lawson's very dear friends. He was, he was a poet. And Henry Lawson wrote in a manuscript that we're going to talk about later called Three or Four Archibalds and a Writer. He wrote in that that uh, John, uh, sorry, Victor Daly had scribbled on John Haynes' office wall. He parts his coin with childbirth pains. His name is Haynes. So my understanding is that Haynes was a little bit tighter on the purse strings than was Archibald because it was Archibald's nature to be very generous uh, to his writers. He was a, a big supporter, especially of Henry Lawson. He was uh, very kind, very generous to Henry. And uh, we'll certainly talk about that relationship in some more detail in this episode. But just in terms of the uh, early days that you asked about, Neither Haynes nor Archibald was very uh, reluctant to share their opinions, and especially with people uh, that they disagreed with. And so almost from the very start, they were uh, sued 
1881, so only a year after they'd started, the two of them found themselves in jail uh, because of a libel suit where they were um, unable to pay the fines that, they, that were imposed upon them. And so John Trail was then instated, instated as the editor, and he worked at the Bulletin for about six years or so. And, and so in uh, Archibald's absence initially, because he was in jail, he, he was actually the chief editor in the very early days. But then when uh, Archibald got out of jail, he uh, resumed working at the Bulletin, although Trail remained as the editor-in-chief. And then... Archibald went overseas and he spent uh, a couple of years overseas in, in Europe. But when Trail sold his shares in the Bulletin and left his uh, job as editor, that's when Archibald was reinstated as the uh, editor-in-chief at the Bulletin. And that same year, 1886, actually William McLeod purchased the... Um, the, the main shares within the Bulletin, and so he became a, uh, a really powerful figure at the Bulletin as well. And by this stage, actually, John Haynes had left. Haynes was only there in the, in the early years of the Bulletin. He, he left for a political career and eventually trailed it as well. So, I mean, these were people who had ambitions to have a positive influence, and, and through that was through their journalism, but, uh, you know, when we see these people leaving their journalistic careers to move into politics. Obviously, their ambition was to try to have the biggest influence that they possibly could. And so this is the type of people that were heavily involved in the establishment of what became a really prominent, uh, a really prominent magazine. I mentioned Archibald was uh, reinstated as the editor-in-chief in, -chief in uh, I think it was 1886. And he then held that position until 1903. So, I mean, he was in that position for a very long time. It's interesting. In Chapter 5 of your book, you talk quite a bit directly and around the significance of Archibald in both the success of other Australian writers and in particular in relation to Lawson. And in fact, you write that while the Bulletin and its kindly leader were good for many Australian authors, there is no doubt that one of the greatest of all beneficiaries was Henry Lawson. And you mention a comment that Lawson wrote um, in relation to this skill of Archibald. Lawson writes, a writer could go up to the bulletin, stares furious and boiling over and come down a few minutes later, so later soothed and even remorseful. This Archibald figure sounds like a fascinating, interesting, complex mind. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the type of person he was. Yeah, well, actually, I think he probably was the ideal type of person, the ideal editor for somebody like Henry Lawson, because, I mean, that uh, that quote that you shared, I mean, that that's a reflection of his temperament, and it was juxtaposed against uh, Henry Lawson's temperament, which was oftentimes volatile. Uh, he, he was known to be short-tempered at times, and so Archibald was able to, to soothe him, to calm him, and to encourage him, and he certainly did that. In 1908, Henry Lawson made a will, and in that will he specified three people as having been his best friends, and one of them was Archibald, Miss Mr. Archibald of the Bulletin, he wrote. So, I mean, that's how dearly Henry regarded uh, J.F. Archibald. 
in his book, In the Days When the World Was Wide, Henry Lawson's book, he also dedicated to Archibald. So there was obviously this great fondness for, for um, J.F. Archibald. Now, he's often referred to as J.F. Archibald, and I think that that's interesting as well in terms of that complexity that you were asking about. But he was actually baptized as John Feltham Archibald. I mean, that was his name, but he recast himself as having a French background, and he changed his name to Jules Francois Archibald. And now there is some suggestion that he did that to try to, uh, I guess, make himself more attractive, uh, more attractive to a pretty French girl that he was interested in, but it is <laughs> more likely um, that he actually was trying to make himself seem somewhat more cultured and somewhat more uh, highbrow, I guess, than might otherwise have been the case. And so he, he created this uh, this French history for himself, and and you know talked about himself being French. At the particular time that we're talking about, the 1880s, 1890s, this was the sort of the blossoming of Australian literature. And so previous to that, you know, the idea, I guess, of literature and the colonies was somewhat. Uh, I guess contradictory and so I think that that was a part of it that he was trying to create this persona whereby there was a field from which literature could emerge even if it had to be in the guise of of, of this Frenchman or under, under the umbrella I guess of this this Frenchman uh, Jules Francois Archibald so yeah I think that that's you know I think he's a, a very interesting character as I said, he, he supported Lawson greatly. He often paid Lawson in advance, and and there were occasions when he didn't get back anything for the generous money that he had uh, dispensed in payment. He said one time of Sydney, where he lived, it's full of rich men, and any one of them could write his name across it forever by bequeathing but they carry money grubbing to the grave with them and rot there forever. And they damn well deserve to be, is, is uh, essentially what he said. So he thought that there were people who, I guess, valued money more than anything else. And that seems not to have been the case with Archibald, that he, uh, he saw money as, as something that could be spent and could be spent for for the benefit of other people, including struggling writers like Henry Lawson. Now, unfortunately, as he got older, his health declined uh, mentally and physically, and his spending, this, this generosity that I'm talking about, actually got out of control. And so his partner, I mentioned uh, William McLeod earlier, had taken over the, the main shares in the bulletin. Uh, to protect his own interests and to protect the bulletin, McLeod actually was instrumental in getting uh, Archibald committed to an asylum, and, and Archibald was there from 1906 until 1910. Now, he was out briefly, but went back in almost immediately. So this was a really bitter blow to Archibald, who blamed McLeod. He understood what had happened, and he blamed McLeod for that, and so this was something that he would never forgive McLeod for, so there was this breakup in their relationship, 
and unfortunately, it really it really damaged Archibald's reputation. So even though he did emerge, and you know after he emerged, he lived another nine or ten years or so, his reputation was so damaged that he was never able to again uh, reclaim his prominent position in Australian literature. So I mean that was that's a, certainly a sad episode, but the reality is that at this particular time, I mean. You couldn't swing a cat without somebody who without hitting somebody who ended up in an asylum. I mean, you think about the story of Henry Lawson, the tragic story of Henry Lawson. I mean, he ends up spending time in a mental uh, asylum, and so does his wife, and so does his mother, and so does his brother, and and so does Archibald, his editor. So I mean, times were obviously very different to they are to the way that they are today. And perhaps if they weren't, you know, perhaps some of my students might have me committed to an asylum as well in the way that uh, seems to have been the case back then. So perhaps I'm fortunate to be living when I am and not back in the 1880s and 1890s. Now, just one other thing about Archibald is just his presence seems to have been so large that Henry, when he was at Archibald's funeral, and we're going to talk about uh, some of the tributes that Henry wrote uh, when Archibald did die in 1919. But, but what, one thing that really struck Henry was just how small Archibald's coffin was because he, he said that he'd always sort of considered or thought of Archibald as a, as a big man. But I think that that was just because of his presence, his spirit, more so than his physical, uh, physical build. But uh, Henry, you know, he, he talked about his presence at his desk and, and he said that he, he was a formidable character. But I mean, there are photographs of Henry and Archibald standing side by side and Henry is looking down, you know, physically looking down on Archibald. So, so certainly Archibald was not a big man, but he gave off, a, I guess he had the presence of a big man, I guess. Um, and as I say, it just struck Henry at the funeral when he saw the coffin. He said it looked so small. And in fact, Henry said that it looked like it was the coffin of a child. Well, I mentioned about some of the tributes that Henry wrote at the time of Archibald's passing. And I know that you've read one of the tributes. You, you read um, Archibald's Monument, a poem that Henry Lawson wrote uh, in 1919. So what did you make of that poem? Anne-Marie? Well, certainly it is evidence of the large presence that Archibald played in Lawson's life. Um, I, I, it's, I was glad at the beginning of this episode, you, you, you went through a brief litany of key figures in the bulletin. Um, when I first read Archibald's Monument, there are many references to various people. So I had to look them up and figure out who was who. Um, and so I, I thought it, it lovely that in addition to paying tribute to Archibald, he also talks and re-recognizes -re the significance of other Australian writers um, that he says, artists who pass from sight, right? And so it, it's a lovely shared monument to Australian literature. He figures in journalism, writing, poetry, drama. Um, and of course, the presence of, of Archibald in Lawson's life is really evident in the last four lines. 
And if you don't mind, I'd like to just read them for a moment. Go ahead. So Lawson writes, The songs we sang to a land unsung as yet, and taught by his guiding tongue. The lines we wrote when our hearts were young are Archibald's monument. And I absolutely love this idea that, and I'm an avid literary traveler, as I know you are, and so the physical structures of monuments as a way to recognize and pay tribute are, uh, of course, important. But I love the idea that Archibald's legacy will go on in the voices of the writers that his generosity, his great support uh, nourished. And so th that sentiment struck me as evidence of the real presence and significance of Archibald on not just Lawson's life, but on the life, the life of Australians' literary presence, present and future. Your thoughts? Well, and just further to, to those thoughts, in, the, in terms of his ongoing legacy, uh, one of the most prestigious awards in Australian art is uh, the Archibald Prize. So he established this, uh, this prize for portraiture, and uh, it's still given today. Uh, so what are we, 103 years after his death. So, I mean, his name is still celebrated through that uh, prize that he established, which, as I say, is, is very prestigious. So he's had a, a, a long-lasting impact. I think that it was interesting that you talked about the, the other writers um, that were made mention of in the poem. Archibald worked with them. They were all all dead, those, uh, the, the Marcus Clark and the Vagabond, who was John Stanley James. Victor Daly, I mentioned earlier, was the one who wrote on Haynes's wall about, I guess, about him um, being reluctant to open his wallet. Uh, Harold Gray was uh, the pen name of, of uh, Theodore Argles. And then the Dipso, Henry recognised, or I guess pointed out, identified uh, Harry Cargill as the Dipso in another piece, the Bohemia buries her dead. So, I mean, they these were people that uh, that Archibald had worked with, was familiar with. These were writers and journalists, and um, some of them actually worked at the Bulletin. So, uh, Hen Henry, there, as you rightly point out, is is recognizing more than just Archibald. But in recognizing more than just Archibald, he is recognizing the influence of Archibald, right, on a, on you know, the idea of Australian literature. And it's another, just going back to his uh, funeral too. So I, sh I should say that this piece was uh, published in the 18th of September bulletin issue in 1919. And, and Archibald had died on the 10th of September. So it was published a week after Archibald's death. And I mentioned him being at the funeral. And I guess as Lawson was leaving the funeral, Henry was asked by by a, a reporter who was there. He was asked to point out some of the other writers who were there paying tribute to uh, Archibald, and and uh, Henry did that. But he said that there was somebody greater than all of them who was there, and and that was Archibald. He said Archibald was there, someone much more important than any one of us. So you know, this, again, this is the the manner, or I guess the esteem in which Archibald was held by his writers and certainly by Henry Lawson. Earlier you mentioned a manuscript written by uh, Henry called Three or Four Archibalds and a Writer. 
tell us what the significance of this particular piece is and what it focuses on? Yeah, well, so, so this was written at, at the same time. So it was uh, written in recognition of Archibald upon Archibald's uh, death. One of the things that he does in this particular piece is that he identifies Archibald as the old chief, which he had also done in, in Archibald's monument, the poem, right? The first line of the poem, doubtless the old chief okay. chats tonight with those other authors that uh, you, you referred to. In three or four Archibalds and a writer, Henry says the old chief as he liked to be called. So I guess that was just something that uh, tickled Archibald's fancy to be referred to in that way. But yeah, the manuscript provides lots of insights into Archibald's character. Henry says, J.F. Archibald was the friend and the father of Australian literature. And he also says he was the king of sub-editors of prose. And Henry says that, uh, that Archibald couldn't touch a line of prose without improving it, which is an interesting way of viewing Archibald and his role because Henry is known to have been very touchy and very resistant to the idea of editors sort of meddling with his work and, and uh, changing uh, his, his lines. But Henry recognized that Archibald was able to, uh, without fail, was able to improve them. So I guess that he, he liked that. He did say that uh, Henry... Uh, sorry, he did say, Henry did say that Archibald avoided interfering with verse, though. So I guess that uh, Archibald was more comfortable with prose than was the case with, with verse, which actually leads to another figure that we'll talk about later is, is uh, when Archibald employs A.G. Stevens. But I guess another thing that Henry makes mention of in this particular manuscript, three or four Archibalds and a writer, is the fact that Archibald was always filled with dread about the prospect of a, an issue being uh, needed to go to print, but him not having enough material to fill it, especially good material. And so Henry said that Archibald would often stockpile works. And he even claimed that he had received payment from Archibald for a piece that didn't actually appear in the bulletin until 14 years later. Because Archibald, I guess, has been holding on to it with this dread that uh, one day he might need it. I guess that particular day he did need it. And then I just one other thing I, I, that I think is really significant in the three or four Archibalds and a writer is Archibald, Archibald's advice to writers. And Henry says that uh, Archibald said that every man has at least one story, some more. Never write until you have something to write about and then write. Write and rewrite. Cut out every word from your copy that you can possibly do without. So he thought that that was really important. Lots of revision, lots of uh, paring things down to what was really essential. And that, that at the heart of that sort of thing could be found a, a really good story. It's interesting because you, 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 when you read Lawson's prose, you can, they're so tight. And so you, you can feel the influence of an editor who has concern. And, and you mention this uh, manuscript in your book and you, you later include the, another idea. Don't write a column on any subject if a half a column will do. So it seemed that Archibald 
had a keen eye for that tightness of script that creates those really intense tableaus that I, I found being consistently struck by as I moved through some of um, Lawson's early prose writing. Yeah. So it's neat to see. Yeah, well, and, and that influence actually has then extended to me because I say to my students, you know, don't use three words if you can get away with two or don't use five if you can get away with four. So, I mean, I don't know if I ever needed to say that to you, Anne-Marie, but I've certainly said it to lots of my graduate students when they when I thought that they were waffling on. So I think I, that, I'm I, sure you have said it to me, and I'm sure I've benefited accordingly. Well, so, you can uh, trace trace the origins of that thought back to uh, J.F. Archibald. Now we our time is running quickly. Um, you began our episode though today by quoting from a different manuscript called the Sydney Bulletin. Can you tell us a little bit about the contents of that piece? Well, so this one was written earlier, right? So this is written in 1901, so well before Archibald was to pass away. Uh, but again, it's just it is a tribute, a reflection on Archibald's influence on Henry. Interestingly, in that particular piece, he does describe Henry. Uh, sorry, Henry does describe Archibald as being tallish. So again, in terms of the physical structure. Uh, Henry just thought that he was much bigger than really was the case. Mm. Um, I guess one or two of the main points, uh, let's see. I guess one thing that Henry says is it is through the existence of the bulletin alone that a purely Australian school of art and literature became possible. He also said that nobody is anybody in Australasia until he has been appreciated or slanged by the bulletin. And no writer is a writer unless he has had something in the bulletin. So, yeah, just I know that we are short of time, but that was just uh, one or two of the highlights there. But, again, just the overall tone is one of recognising the importance of the bulletin and recognising and, and paying tribute to the role of Archibald in the bulletin. And another key figure in the bulletin you mentioned just briefly earlier, A.G. Stevens, could we just, before we conclude, focus a little bit of time on this figure? Yeah. So Alfred George Stevens was brought into the was brought into the bulletin in uh, mid eighteen ninety four. So I mean, it had been going, you know, almost for fifteen years at this stage. But recognizing that he needed some assistance with poetry and with some other more highbrow material, Archibald employed Stevens to be the literary editor. And in 1896, so uh, Stevens had sort of established his presence at the Bulletin, and then he really solidified that presence when in 1896 he established the, the so-called Red Page, which was the inside cover, which became the real home for, for literature, uh, literary criticism, reviews, and the inclusion of really some really important poems and short stories. Now, Stevens wasn't able always, in fact, often was not able to limit it to one page, and so it spilled into other pages within the bulletin. But that became a home for, uh, for some of the most uh, critically important Australian literature of the time, that, uh, that so-called red page. Now, Stevens had worked with Henry at the Boomerang, 
in Brisbane in 1890. They were at the at newspaper, and we're going to talk about the boomerang in our next episode, actually, in Henry's time there. So Stevens and Henry were already familiar with one another, and they had an often sort of a, uh, I guess, a love-hate relationship. And I don't mean that they one was all love and one was all hate, but I think that at times they frustrated one another. One of the things that uh, A.G. Stevens, Alfred George Stevens, found particularly frustrating about Henry was he thought that Henry wasted his talent. He thought that Henry could do much better if he was able to stay, I guess, sober for long enough to do much better. If he was able to put in the effort, the time and the effort necessary to, to do the best writing that he possibly could. So, yeah, Stevens could be very critical. For instance, in 1901, he claimed Henry was only a second-rate poet and his writing at the time had barely become second-rate journal work. So, he, he, again, he thought that Henry was wasting his talents. When he reviewed Henry's book, When I Was King, in 1905, he said, these are not the best of Lawson, but the worst. So, I mean, that was the type of review that Stevens would often give, very direct and to the point and very critical. And he did criticize Henry for being maudlin and taking a negative outlook. He, he thought that uh, Henry's writing was often too, way too dark and, and way too negative. However, I mean, the two did work together on, on many projects, and so they knew one another very well, and, and Stevens recognized just how sensitive Lawson was to criticism and to, you know, um, amendments to his work by an editor. And, and Stevens said that he thought that Henry could feel an editorial cut in his work as if it were a cut in his flesh. Uh, Henry took it that, that uh, personally. But Stevens was fair and even-handed and, 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 you know, he tried to separate the man from the work. And I thought that one of the ways that Henry, uh, sorry, that uh, A.G. Stevens described Henry is, is really important. He said at this particular time that he'd known Henry for nine years. And he said, in those nine years, I have known him to say and do, as it seemed to me, many foolish things. But I never knew him to say or do a mean thing. He has a good heart. So, I mean, Stevens did like Henry. But again, as I say, he thought that Henry wasted the God-given talent with which he'd been so uh, liberally endowed. This relationship was a, it was a tense one. And um, you know, I think it uh, was a real trial for both of them. But as far as I'm concerned, there's no doubt that Henry benefited from A.G. Stevens in some of the same ways that he benefited from, from uh, J.F. Archibald. It's interesting, you know, sometimes a great writer enters the domain of excellence through that tough feedback. And though I'm interested if Lawson ever wrote publicly about his thinking on Stevens, but perhaps that's for another time. They had a back and forth that we will get to at some point when Henry wrote Pursuing Literature in Australia. Uh, uh, Stevens attacked him for that, and then uh, Lawson attacked back. And then when um, Henry returned from England, he wrote a piece called 
and if my memory serves me correctly, it was the Sweet Uses of London, I think it was, and then A.G. Stevens responded with uh, a, a piece called Another View. So, I mean, they did have this back and forth, and so there would have certainly been specific instances in those sorts of pieces where Henry made uh, direct reference to Stevens and by name, uh, or certainly by position. It is evident through your sharing of these anecdotes and stories and information that Stevens, um, Archibald, and of course the Bolton had a major influence, a foundational, central uh, influence in Lawson's career and life. Um, and I'd love to keep going, but I think that's all the time we have for now. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please let others know about it and invite them to consider joining the Henry Lawson Memorial and Literary Society. In closing, we again wish to express our thanks to David Minier and John Schumann for permission to use musical excerpts from Schumann's Lawson album. Thank you so much, Dr. Brian. Well, thank you, Anne-Marie. I love to talk about Henry, and it's fantastic that we got an opportunity today to talk about J.F.R. Tubald as well. I remember, oh man, I remember the checks that we followed our clear. 